So, Mr. Tom Bateman, uh, where are we? Why are we here? What's going on? So, we are hanging around outside Kinshicho Station in the east of Tokyo. Uh, and we've come here because uh, I've been told by some of the people I interviewed for my article that this is like one of the holy sites, as they call it, of Pokemon Go. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd and I'm joined today by Tom Bateman, a freelance journalist who recently wrote an article for the BBC about the 25th anniversary of Pokemon. Pokemon is thought to be the world's most valuable media franchise, estimated to be worth around $100 billion, with an empire that straddles video games, playing cards, TV, and of course, Pokemon Go, which had around 1 billion downloads as of March 2019. My whole screen is like completely full of Pokemon and Pokemon gyms. There's loads of stuff around here in like a really tight, like small area. So it's really, really easy basically to like level up your character and like do well in the game just by hanging around outside the station. The original version of Pokemon debuted on the Game Boy in Japan on February 27th, 1996, and sparked the first wave of Pokemania, both here in Japan and then overseas when it was eventually launched internationally. I get you get alerts as well. I've gotten a few alerts saying that other people are playing around it. Like, if we look around, I don't know. I can't see anyone. They are somewhere. I don't know. I'm just looking out for people who are on their phones. <laughs> that guy over there, maybe. This week on Deep Dive, Tom takes us through the 25-year history of Pokemon and how it has become one of Japan's most successful and recognisable exports. Tom Bateman, welcome to Deep Dive. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Do you remember your first interaction, your first experience with Pokemon? So my first Pokemon experience, if I can call it that, was when I went to go and get a copy of Pokemon Blue, which must have been in like 1999. So I was uh, about seven or eight years old. And basically me and my dad and my brother went to this electronic store in a big kind of like out of town mall on the edge of Oxford where we were living. It was just after me and my brother's birthdays. We, our birthdays are both in the same month. And so my dad bought each of us a Game Boy Color and a copy of Pokemon Blue for me and Pokemon Red for my brother. And like immediately we just like slammed the batteries in the Game Boys, whacked the cartridges <laughs> in, into, the, into, the, into the Game Boys, like tossed the boxes. I don't know where the box went. And like we were just like hooked immediately. And after we went to the store to get the Game Boys. My dad wanted to go to the DIY store next door. And so we were like just following him around, <laughs> just holding these things, just like glued to the screen. And I think basically stayed that way for like several years afterwards. <laughs> You're so lucky. I don't, I don't think I was ever allowed a Game Boy. Really? I didn't get a console until the PlayStation 2 came out in whatever year that was. Oh man, oh, yeah. you missed out. No Game Boy. I remember being so excited because my cousin had a Game Boy. I don't think it was a Game Boy Color. I think it was a classic black and white oh, Game yeah, Boy yeah. original um, with Pokemon Yellow. Mm. And every time we went round to their house, it was so exciting to play. I had a similar thing. And I think it's a really interesting, like, generational thing. And it shows kind of what a big deal Pokemon was as well, which is that, yeah, like when I went to my friend's house, they had a Nintendo 64 and I, we didn't have one. Uh, and we just played Pokemon Stadium. There was Pokemon Snap, you know, the game where you go around and like take photos of Pokemon in like a sort of safari type thing. And it was such a, like a massive part of like all my friendships at that time, mm -hmm. you know, as, as, a, as a kid growing up was, was always, you know, like revolving around these games. Yeah, I think that's a really big part of kind of what we're here to talk about today, which is like how Pokemon got so big. Like, how did that even happen? Well, that's the perfect segue. 
So Pokemon was launched on February 27th, 1996, and now it's in its 25th year. Just how big has it become? So to to give you an idea of the scale, I mean, so here in Japan, there's a really, really high level of like like, like background level of Pokemon. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean by that? by, By which I mean like... You know, on the way here, for example, I I looked just to check to see if it was there, like at a vending machine just by the side of the street. Obviously, there are loads of those around and some of them sell uh, like a sort of Pokemon branded tea, for example. So you can just get that. Equally, you know, I took the Metro to get here and on the Metro, you can see safety posters with Pokemon on them. I even, you know, when I went to get my driving license renewed uh, at the police station a few weeks ago, there was like a Pokemon kind of safety, like awareness poster in there as well like it's kind of everywhere to give a sense of like how big it is as a a business and as a franchise for the article that i wrote to to tie in with the 25th anniversary i went to go and interview uh tsunekazu ishihara who is the president of the pokemon company which Mm -hmm. is like the big company that kind of oversees the whole brand and in their office their offices uh were in the big kind of fancy mori tower in roppongi so it's Mm -hmm. like very ritzy address you go up there and you're in this amazing space which is full of like special pokemon artwork so there's a um kind of big sculpture on the wall of the logo and then you go into like ishihara-san's office and on the wall where we where we sat down in the in the room where we sat down and had the interview basically the entire wall was a big map of the world <laughs> and it was covered in these like colored pins and i asked him like we were talking about like what is this map and what are these pins and basically there are four colors of pins which represent Pokemon Go, the video games, the TV show, and the trading cards. And almost every country in the world had a red pin, which meant that all four of those things were like available in that territory. Wow. Almost everywhere. Where, where didn't? So I think, if I remember rightly, I think the only two countries that didn't have any pins at all were Afghanistan and North Korea. <laughs> which I think gives you a real sense of like how vast well, you like, know, the Pokemon Kim, Kim, empire yeah. is. Well, Kim Jong-un's definitely got some trading cards somewhere. This is the and thing, And if he right? doesn't, we'll send some. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing, like, and I'm sure, you know, unofficially it definitely exists um, in, in, in those countries as well. <laughs> so is there an actual dollar figure for how much we think Pokemon is worth in 2021? So it's very difficult to put an exact figure on it because the Pokemon company won't give one. But there are estimates out there that I've seen which put it at around 100 billion US dollars, which would make it, you know, by some margin, the most valuable media franchise ever. You know, to, to, to give you a sense of where it stands, you know, compared to some other famous things, you know, the number two most valuable is Hello Kitty, which is worth about 88 billion. Wow. Uh, and then something like Harry Potter is more like around 30 billion, Star Wars around 30 to 40. Um, So it really is like a vast business empire. Let's go into the origin story now. Where and how did Pokemon begin? So I think to explain the the origin of Pokemon, you have to go back to Tokyo's suburbs in the 1960s. And you have to talk about a guy named Satoshi Tajiri, who is basically the original creator of Pokemon. He grew up in Machida, which is a suburb of Tokyo. Back then, it was a lot more rural than it is now. And he spent his childhood uh, collecting insects. 
that was like a really big thing that he loved doing. And mm. there you can read kind of a lot of interesting interviews with him, mainly from like around the early 2000s, where he's talking about how uh, he would go and collect beetles and different kinds of insects and collect them in, in little kind of plastic containers. And and when you think about that, these kind of, you know, collecting these different creatures and keeping them in little storage containers, if you know about how Pokemon works mm. and the, the concept of like the Pokeball where you like throw it at this creature and you capture it and contain it within this ball, you can kind of see where like the germ of the idea comes from. Yeah. And if he was catching caterpillars, for example, he'd also see them metamorphose or evolve into butterflies or moths another key concept of the game exactly exactly you can see where a lot of these concepts come from the natural world i think another interesting thing uh, that he's talked about in interviews is the kind of interactive element of of that bug collecting mm. you know he would go out with his friends and they would collect different different insects they could see them and compare them see how the insects interacted with each other you know sometimes they would eat each other sometimes they would ignore each other sometimes they would fight you know things different things would happen but there was this there's always this element of kind of direct like personal interaction direct contact that kind of thing um and that really kind of inspired the concept of the the original pokemon game boy games basically what happened was I think Tajiri had, had had this idea of some kind of like creature collecting game kind of percolating in his mind for, mm. for, for many years. But it kind of didn't take its final form until the Game Boy came out, the Nintendo Game Boy, which came out in 1989. And that Game Boy had a link cable, basically this accessory where you could connect two Game Boys together. Not very many games used it, but one game did. It was Tetris. Basically, you could play competitively like mm. two people could play against each other in tetris by connecting their game boys together and tajiri saw the cable and he thought okay battling is fine but what about trading there's an interview in time magazine from 1999 where he basically says i looked at the cable and i imagined the insects these creatures kind of crawling back and forth across it and that really i think is the clear link between you know his childhood growing up and Pokemon kind of as we know it or, or, or as it came to be. Mm -hmm. So the cable almost allowed a replication of what he was experiencing in real life as a child, this idea that you could trade and interact with all these different bugs and Ab absolutely. Pokemon as a game that became such a core element of it. Absolutely. And I think it's an interesting thing because, you know, he grew up in a Japan and a Tokyo that was a lot more rural than it was by the time we got to the 1990s, for example. So, you know, Kids couldn't really go out and collect insects, but they could go and collect and swap kind of digital creatures instead. So there's a kind of a little like parallel sort of Japanese history as well. <laughs> as Japan has developed, so has Pokemon. Yeah. Um, so how did the game actually come about? You say he, you know, he's got this inspiration from his youth mm. collecting bugs, but mm. how did that turn into an actual game that existed on a Game Boy? Yeah. Well, so Tajiri kind of he was interested in games and game development, but he kind of actually started out by setting up a, a magazine about games. It was a self-published magazine called Game Freak, which did end up getting quite popular. As the idea for Pokemon crystallized and kind of became like a, you know, a thing that they actually wanted to go, and go ahead and make, it became a game development studio, also called Game Freak, which still exists, which still makes, you know, most of the Pokemon games. Mm -hmm. So the Game Boy came out in 1989 and Game Freak approached Nintendo with the idea in the early 90s. 
The thing is that they were a really small team working on the original games. So it took quite a long time. In, in the end, it took about six years, six or seven years, to actually get the first two games, Pokemon Red and Green, onto the shelves. By which time, the Game Boy was pretty old technology. You know, it had been out since 1989. People were kind of over it. Um, and this was a big worry. You know, when I spoke to Ishihara-san, he said, by that time in 1996, Game Boys were kind of, you know, they were a thing that was like being left in in kids, like in drawers in their bedrooms, you know, the collecting dust, the batteries running out. It was a bit of a gamble to put a game out on a console that was kind of, everyone thought was kind of over. But amazingly, it didn't matter. Basically, it succeeded. They 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 sold the games pretty well. They sold about a million copies in Japan, which was kind of what they wanted to do. And that kind of gave the Game Boy a bit of a new lease of life. And I think it also was a bit of the proof of the concept, you know, the fact that people really did want to go mm-hmm. for this game link cable, you know, the trading, collecting. It, you know, Pokemon became this thing that was kind of sweeping Japanese playgrounds and schools. So that was 1996 when it hit the shelves here in Japan. How and when did it get its international release and start to turn into this absolute global phenomenon that we see today? The weird thing about it is that it was quite uncertain. And it seems crazy to say that now when we live in a world where, you know, we've lived through various Pokemanias that have happened in the last 25 years. And it's crazy to think that that almost didn't happen, but it, but it really didn't. So the games were pretty successful in Japan, but that was kind of all the makers originally foresaw. That was kind of, they never, basically they never thought they were going to sell them in other countries. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that, as kind of Ishihara said to me, in, in, you know, and, I, and, and I published in the article, is that they didn't think that American kids would play a game that involved a lot of reading, <laughs> <laughs> which is like, I mean, it's a little bit rude. But that was really the thinking. You know, it seemed really uncertain because Pokemon is basically, there's a lot of text and there's not really any action. It was something that was quite different for, you know, in, in, in terms of the international market and which they just really weren't certain would work at all. Mm-hmm. But they did decide to push ahead. And the game had had such a torturous development process. You know, it took about six or seven years that the code was really fragile. Mm. And when it came to trying to localize the games from Japanese into English, it turned out that basically it wasn't going to be as simple as just like translating it. You, they were basically going to have to like reprogram the game from the ground up, which is like, <laughs> it's, it's a serious task, right? right? Yeah. And it's not, it's not where you want to be. Especially um, when it took you six or seven years to do it the first time as well. Yeah, when it took you seven years to do it the first time, when you're a small developer, you know, with with not really very many people on hand when you've got the you know the next generation of games that you want to focus on getting out what are you going to do and they got quite lucky there was a guy called Satoru Iwata who became well at this time he was the boss of a gaming studio called HAL Laboratories and he said okay I'm going to take this on and I'm going to look into this and see how we can basically rebuild this game from the ground up to make it work for an international audience he didn't work for Game Freak, he didn't even work for Nintendo, but he kind of took it on and was this kind of bridge between the two and, and made it happen. He, he actually later went on to become the president of Nintendo um, before he sadly died in 2015. Mm. But, you know, so it's, this guy t- 
taking it on as 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 kind of his his mission. So it became almost like a hobby project, or not necessarily a hobby, project, kind of like a passion, like project passion project or something. You know, I don't, I don't know if I don't know if he maybe just saw the potential. I don't really know what the motivation was, but it's, it's it seems kind of unorthodox mm-hmm. to us now. Um, but it worked. But obviously, it did take time. So the process of making the game, making the English versions of the game, took a couple of years. By which time the anime had already been translated into English and localized and released in the US in kind of autumn of 1998. Mm-hmm. And what that meant, quite by accident, is that the anime came out and started to build the hype around Pokemon. You know, kids were seeing it and they were like, we really like this thing. This is a different, this is like some very different entertainment that we haven't really been used to. And then, you know, about a month later, the games hit the shelves. You know, suddenly you've got you've you've accidentally already built the excitement. You've already basically marketed mm. the, the 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 Pokemon universe to all these kids, and suddenly you're like, "Hey, by the way, here's the game. You can you can you can catch them all. You can be a Pokemon master yourself. You don't just have to watch it on TV." And I think it just kind of went from there. So they've built this accidental marketing machine yeah. through uh, through you know basically letting one person develop and translate <laughs> the international version of Pokemon as their passion project. Yeah. So, I mean, the next question is, how well did it do when it was launched overseas? I think anyone who's kind of around there at the time, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, will remember how massive Pokemon was. It was, you know, th- that Time magazine interview that I mentioned with um, Tajiri, that was part of Time's, like, November 1999 uh, edition, which was you know about a month or so after the games came out in Europe, and that 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 edition is called like Pokemania, and I think that just shows like how big it had got. You know that there was an entire edition of this magazine devoted to this game franchise, which just it wasn't a thing that had happened before. You know the sales figures, I think internationally, were way beyond what I think anyone originally expected. I think to date. I think it's the first two generations of Game Boy Color games internationally have sold something like 75 million copies, which is, which is huge. enormous. Yeah, and it's way more than they expected. You know, like Game Freak were happy with like a million in Japan. So this is like far beyond what anyone imagined. And what do you think it was that made Pokemon so successful on its release? I mean, we've mentioned this kind of mm. accidental marketing machine, but is that, <laughs> yeah. is that the... Uh, you know, is, is that what really drove the success that it was launched in basically multiple different avenues at the same time? I, I think that's certainly a part of it, right? Like these kind of interlocking arms where, you know, you watch the cartoon or you watch the movies and you think, I want to do that. So you get the game, then you want to play it with your friends. Maybe you get the trading cards um, and all these things kind of feed into each other. You know, like every time there's a new game, there's a new series of the anime, for example. The setting changes and there's a new movie. Um, so there's there's a lot of clever kind of multi-level marketing involved, which I think is a big part of like why Pokemon is such a kind of business phenomenon, mm-hmm. you know, and why it's incredibly successful. I think in terms of the games themselves, though, they did do something quite new and unique. And a lot of it was to do with uh, the original kind of the link cable and that and Satoshi Tajiri's kind of edi- initial inspiration, which was basically, okay, if we're going to trade, if we're going to, make it so that you can take this game and you can interact with your friends, you can trade and you can battle and you can do whatever. Why don't we have two different versions of the game? They're basically the same, 
but each one has some exclusive Pokemon that you can only get in one version. So if you want to complete the game, you've got to meet up with someone who's got the other version and trade. You can't catch all 150 Pokemon by yourself. So close. You need a friend to trade with. And they kind of developed this more, so there are some Pokemon that they put in that only evolved if you traded, you know, between the versions, for example. So it really kind of, it was, it was kind of baked in, was this idea that you have to go out and you have to interact and you have to really, like, mm. you, it wasn't like a passive game right that you kind of just sat there and did you actually had to go and like proactively be involved if you really wanted to finish it and i think that was quite a unique thing and i think that really contributed to like you know like the schoolyard hype that was such a big part of the phenomenon you know in the early days Scoring that initial massive hit with the first release of Pokemon is obviously incredibly impressive, selling 75 million copies. But to keep it up for 25 years is also incredibly difficult. So how has Pokemon managed to maintain its relevance? I think a big part of it is that they've been able to innovate. Uh, a lot of that is you know, technological. So it started off with the link cable, but then when Wi-Fi became a thing, suddenly you could trade with anyone around the world. You could battle with anyone around the world. And so that created a whole new, really big niche of, you know, people who are really into the competitive battling scene. Suddenly that became a thing that you could do. That was a whole new niche for Pokemon. A game like Pokemon Go, when that came out in 2016, that basically invented a new genre of mobile games, the kind of augmented reality. Mm-hmm. And again, that was, you know, a technological thing. That regards, you know, you need a smartphone, you need a good phone camera, you need fast data connection it's all stuff that kind of becomes possible and clearly you know someone at the pokemon company identifies a new niche and they fill it and i think that's a big part of like how you know how you keep something fresh and how you keep it novel and engaging for so long you mentioned pokemon go there and i want to pause on that for a moment because i think it is one of the most interesting examples of the power of pokemon because not only did pokemon go show the potential of augmented reality for the first time, but it mm, also popularized mm. it in a way that I really don't think has been replicated since. Mm, so mm. how did Pokemon Go come into being? The Pokemon Go story is really interesting. We need to start with a guy called Tatsuo Nomura, who grew up in, I think, in Nagano in Japan. And he grew up in, you know, in the 90s. He was a kid and he was playing Pokemon, and he was watching the cartoons and the movies. He was, you know, steeped in this stuff. This was his childhood, like it was for so many of us. Um, he went on to be a software developer um, working for Google, and he ended up working in the Google Maps division. And basically, you know how Google do every year, they do like an April Fool's mm. thing. And so one year in 2014, he did the Google Maps April Fool. And his idea was basically to place, like on the on the Google Map of the world, just various Pokemon in different places, like little Easter eggs that people could sort of stumble on. Yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I think it got some attention at the time, but it was kind of, you know, it wasn't like a huge thing, mm. but people were like, oh, okay, that's cool. It's like, that was the real world, but it's Pokemon. Oh, weird. But like, which, and, which again, it kind of fe- feeds on that nostalgia that the series has and on that kind of like universality of the experience. But so somebody at Niantic, which is like Google's in-house game studio, saw the concept 
and they took it to the Pokemon company. They took it to Ishihara-san at the Pokemon company and said, yeah, we think this could be, this could be something, mm. right? And they said, yeah, okay, go and do it. And again, that's a really big difference because that's the first time Pokemon was not developed, you know, in-house. You know, it was kind of given off to, to like an external developer. Uh, and it's also the first mobile game. So it's like, it was quite a big new thing. I guess there was a, an element of risk involved because of that, but they went for it. And, you know, in 2016, it came out in the summer of 2016. And I think we probably all remember, it became a, an absolute phenomenon. People were walking around and like strange things were happening. You know, weird stuff. People were like stumbling into places <laughs> they shouldn't be, like <laughs> trespassing. People were like finding like dead bodies in, in woodlands and stuff. I remember that happened. But it's an interesting thing because, I don't know, it just it kind of characterizes, I think, the whole Pokemon story, which is really like one of extremes, right? Like this is a game that, or not just a game, but like a whole franchise that has hit these extremes, you know, being the most valuable media franchise, being, you know, the fastest selling mobile game, you know, having so much media and, well, fame and also infamy, at the same time. I feel like there's two themes that have come up throughout this conversation, mm. which again, the Pokemon Go example illustrates pretty mm. well, which is one, this element of interactivity that's existed throughout all of the Pokemon games yeah. that from the ground up, it was built around this idea of trading or interacting with other people or interacting with the real world. Mm. And mm. then the other theme is almost this like insane passion for the game, yeah, which has led not only people to play it very extensively but also for example it to get translated into english for the first time for a google maps developer to develop this ar technology mm, that mm, could mm. then be evolved into its own game and and do phenomenally well there yeah so yeah it, they're both very interesting kind of aspects that seem to have led to its success over time yeah absolutely i think i think it is something that people get really passionate for and kind of always have done and I don't know. I think it's hard to kind of like diagnose why that might be. I think a lot of it is that kind of, again, that really kind of holistic marketing, that like self-reinforcing kind of way that it works, you know, with all the different arms of the empire. I keep calling it an empire because, you know, I can't stop thinking about that world map <laughs> covered in pins. But I think that's a really big part of it. And I think for the Pokemon company as well, they're very aware of that. Pokemon Go came out in 2016, which is five years ago now. So I wanted to get your thoughts on what you thought the cultural significance of Pokemon is in 2021. Are we still seeing new developments? Is it still growing yeah. and evolving and yeah. finding new niches? It's an interesting story because, you know, it is a story of extremes. We have these extreme peaks of interest. So, you know, that initial Pokemania in the early 2000s, you have... Twitch plays Pokemon in 2014 when, you know, suddenly the world was watching, uh, you know, over a million people playing a game of Pokemon Red on, t on, on the gaming streaming website Twitch all at the same time, you know, and that was hitting headlines. Mm -hmm. Then 2016, Pokemon Go comes out. And again, you have this huge explosion in, in interest in the number of players. And okay, like these peaks are, are, of course, followed by troughs. You know, there are ups and downs, but there is always, I think, still this base level of interest. And a lot of that is to do with nostalgia. I think a big part of the, the success is based off, off of that initial really big kind of global success, that explosive Pokemania in the early 2000s really has 
given them kind of an entire generation of of people who grew up on Pokemon, who probably still remember the names of most of the creatures, you know, who know, who can sing the theme song, yep. you know, all this stuff, right? And I think that's a really powerful pool to draw on, right? Because that nostalgia helps feed into getting new customers, for example. I mean, because now, now, you know, the kids who were seven or eight back in 1998, 1999, many of them are probably now having families of their own or getting towards that point. Yeah, this is something that somebody I spoke to for the article, uh, she's called Lou Cromie. She's a kind of, again, she's a teacher from London. And so she grew up on Pokemon. And then she was telling me how, like, she's now got friends around her age who've got their kids and their kids are now getting into Pokemon and the parents are now getting back into it. And so it kind of is this weird like circle of life that they've almost got now where you have this intergenerational thing happening. So kind of all this stuff just makes it into this cultural mega hit that I don't know, like I can't really imagine it going away. So if it's not going away, what's next for Pokemon? I think you can basically expect to see another 25 years because as we've seen in since 1996 since those original games came out there's been lots of changing lots of updating lots of expansion into loads of different things and I don't think they intend to slow down on that anytime soon and I think the really well I think the best way to describe what the Pokemon company intends to do is to think back to what uh, Tsunekazu Ishihara the president of the company told me you know, so we're sitting in his office, right, This in this ritzy office in the Mori Tower in, in Roppongi, looking at this big map on the wall covered in the red pins that say that there's Pokemon everywhere, almost everywhere around the world. And I asked him, like, okay, what do you, where do you want to be? Like, what do you want to achieve in the next 25 years? And he kind of, like, sat back in the chair, like, put his hands on his head and sort of looked at the map. He was, like, studying the map. And he just said world domination (laughs) and i believe him honestly like they've kind of basically done that anyway so yeah i don't think pokemon's going anywhere fast tom bateman thank you very much thanks very much that was tom bateman my thanks to him for joining us this week and his article is linked in the show notes Next week's episode, I'm planning to have Bloomberg's Lisa Du on again to give an update on Japan's vaccine situation. So if you've got any questions about the vaccine rollout here that you'd like answered, do let us know. Email them through to deepdive at japantimes.co.jp. That's deepdive at japantimes.co.jp. And we'll do our best to answer them. If you like this episode, write us a review, share it with a friend or follow us on Twitter. Our main account is at Japan Deep Dive, or you can follow me at OMH Boyd for all the latest updates on the podcast. That's it for this week's episode. We'll be back next Wednesday as per usual. Until then, Potskade-san. Potskade-san.